This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic stewardship. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, filling in for our moderator, Dr. Jim Allen. It was the fall of 1827, and Charles Darwin was bored. He was in his second year of medical school at the University of Edinburgh, but was neglecting his medical studies as he was more interested in studying the biology of oysters. So his father sent him to Cambridge to study to become a county parson instead. Well, there he was more interested in studying entomology than religion. However, he did manage to graduate in 1831. But with no employment opportunities that interested him, he decided to sign on as a naturalist on a five-year expedition to chart the coast of South America on the HMS Beagle. His observations during the voyage served as the foundation for his theory of natural selection that later became the central tenet of evolutionary biology. Perhaps nowhere has natural selection been more easily observed in the past than the emergence of antibiotic resistance over the past 80 years. In 1928, Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin purely by accident. In 1941, police constable Albert Alexander became the first person treated with penicillin when he scratched his face with a rose thorn and then developed a flesh-consuming infection caused by Staph aureus. After five days of treatment with the new drug, his infection was miraculously under control, but then he relapsed when his doctors exhausted their supply of penicillin. When penicillin was initially rolled out, it killed essentially all Staph aureus bacteria, but by 1942, penicillin-resistant Staph was identified, and by 1946, 12.5% of all Staph aureus were, isolates were resistant to penicillin. One year later, the incidence of penicillin-resistant Staph had tripled even further. 
To fight the rapidly emerging resistance of Staph aureus to penicillin, a new semi-synthetic penicillin derivative was created in 1859 called methicillin. It was first marketed in September 1960, but only one month later, a public health lab in London identified isolates of staph that were resistant to the new antibiotic, and these were called methicillin-resistant staph aureus, or MRSA. 30 years ago, 2% of all staph infections were due to MRSA. Today in the United States, in many hospitals, most staph infections are caused by MRSA, and up to one-third of Americans are chronically colonized with MRSA in their noses. To treat MRSA infections, the medical community turned to vancomycin. But in 2002, the first case of vancomycin-resistant staph aureus was identified in a diabetic patient in Michigan. Today, the incidence of vancomycin-resistant staph aureus is growing, and VRSA has replaced MRSA as the bacterial boogeyman in our nation's hospitals. Antibiotic overuse and misuse is fertilizer for antimicrobial resistance, and there are specific steps that all of us can take to prescribe antibiotics more judiciously and slow the emergence of drug-resistant pathogens. Here to tell us about what we can do to better protect our patients from antimicrobial resistance are two experts on the subject from The Ohio State University. Erica Reed is a PharmD and the lead specialty practice pharmacist for infectious diseases. And Dr. Sidney Agnello, is an assistant professor of internal medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and is the lead for ambulatory antimicrobial stewardship at OSU. Erica, Sydney, welcome. Thanks for having us. Well, Erica, the problem of antimicrobial resistance just seems so overwhelmingly depressing. It seems like there's almost nothing we can do. Is there any hope? I would say there is. Certainly, it's a global uh, public health threat of antimicrobial resistance, but we can use the antimicrobials that we have more judiciously to prevent further resistance development. Well, Sydney, when most physicians think about antibiotic stewardship, they think about inpatient programs that help control antibiotic use in hospitalized patients. Can antibiotic stewardship be applied to outpatient settings also? Yeah, that's a great question. They can, and antimicrobial stewardship should be applied outpatient as well, and the CDC has prioritized this in the past decade. Well, thanks, Sydney. For all of you viewing, you can watch all 120 of our current MedNet webcasts by going to ccme.osu.edu on your web browser. And if you prefer to get your continuing medical education by podcast, just go to your podcast app and search OSU MedNet 21. Also, if you have questions about antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic stewardship, you can email us by using the Ask a Question icon at the bottom of the MedNet webpage. And now let's get started with today's webcast. Erica? Thanks, Jim. Today I'll be discussing antimicrobial resistance. The objectives of my talk will be to highlight the burden of antimicrobial resistance, which I'll refer to as AMR throughout the presentation. We'll discuss factors contributing to the emergence of AMR, and finally review some common pathogens displaying AMR in the community and in the hospital setting. This is a statement put out by the CDC almost 25 years ago now, stating that we are entering into what I would call a post-antibiotic era. What do we mean by post-antibiotic era? Well, similar to the pre-antibiotic era before penicillin was invented or discovered rather, um, we have patients who are dying from infections that we have no antibiotics left to treat. And this is because our antibiotic choices are becoming increasingly limited and expensive. And for some patients, not non-existent completely due to multi-drug resistance. And why does resistance develop? 
This is largely due to overuse of antibiotics, both in the ambulatory and the hospital setting. We know that there are 200 to 300 million antibiotic prescriptions written each year, and about half of these are written in the outpatient setting. Many hospitalized patients receive an antibiotic at some point during their stay, and some of these prescriptions, um, antibiotic use, are unnecessary, suboptimal, and furthermore, some of these patients will develop adverse side effects. Um, they might have um, also development of resistance from the use of those antibiotics. And we know that antibiotics are societal agents in that their use in one patient today may compromise their efficacy in another patient tomorrow. And again, that is because with further use of antibiotics, we are fostering the development of resistance. The good news is there are a number of measures that can help prevent further development of antimicrobial resistance. And the CDC publishes every few years a threat report, which was last updated in 2019. And what they found was that since the prior uh, published report in 2013, there were 18% fewer deaths from antimicrobial resistance and 28% fewer deaths from antibiotic resistance in hospitals specifically. And largely what they observed were decreases in infections caused by uh, organisms such as VRE or vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, multidrug-resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa, MRSA, carbapenem-resistant Acinetobacter, and drug-resistant Candida species. Some of the strategies that can be used in the hospital setting to reduce the development of antimicrobial resistance or the spread of these pathogens include preventing device and procedure-related infections, such as removing urinary catheters or central lines when they're found to be unnecessary. We can also stop the spread of resistant germs within and between healthcare settings by using infection prevention measures that are well-founded in data. Also containing emergent threats by isolating patients who are found to have these organisms, by detecting them early and responding aggressively. We can track and improve our antibiotic use via stewardship strategies, which Sydney will talk about shortly. And then finally, infection prevention and control measures um, that I mentioned already. And then in the community, what can be done? Well, we, certainly we could encourage widespread use of vaccines to prevent infections and spread of these infections. Also, routine screening for tuberculosis and gonorrhea in patients at risk for these infections and prompt treatment when they are identified. Also, encouraging safer sex practices to prevent the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. Also, safe food handling and preparation should always be observed. And finally, improving antibiotic use everywhere as AMR is a global health threat. Despite all of the, the good news around uh, the fact that there are measures we can take to prevent the development of AMR, it does remain a looming threat. Um, as you can see here in 2019, the CDC's threat report estimated that 2.8 million antibiotic-resistant infections occur each year in the United States, and 35,000-plus of these result in death. Some of the challenges that remain within the hospital setting do uh, include uh, the spreading of these organisms from patient to patient um, when infection control measures are not observed closely. Um, also, incomplete adoption of containment strategies, inconsistent implementation of some of the CDC recommendations, introduction of emerging threats from outside of the United States, and then uh, vigilance against serious threats like nightmare bacteria, such as carbapenem-resistant Enterobacterialis or CRE. 
in the community, poor hygiene uh, would certainly increase a risk of spreading of AMR um, from one person to another. We can see a, um, antimicrobial resistant organisms spread via the food supply, inconsistent use of safe sex practices, uh, mis or underuse of vaccines, um, also uh, AMR spreading within the animal population. And then again, um, from one country to another, as AMR develops, um, we know that uh, any multidrug resistant organism is just a plane ride away. One billion people cross through international borders each year. And so um, being that we are a global society, we can't um, feel safe knowing that if AMR occurs in one country, we can't uh, think that that isn't possibly going to show up in our backyard tomorrow. Um, so everybody has to be on high vigilance and use antibiotics uh, responsibly um, across the entire globe. How does antimicrobial resistance spread? This really is a One Health um, problem, and we need to take a One Health approach. And what do I mean by that? Um, you know, the multidrug resistant pathogens aren't just spread from person to person um, within our environment or from direct contact. They can also be spread within healthcare facilities, in the community, in our environment, um, via food consumption. So certainly antibiotic use in agriculture, in our food supply, et cetera, um, and safe handling of, of those materials and responsible use of antibiotics in those spaces are equally important. How does antimicrobial resistance develop? In simple terms, there are lots of germs or organisms around in our bodies, in our environment, et cetera, and a few of these are drug resistant. When a patient takes an antibiotic, bacteria causing the illness um, can be killed if they are susceptible to the drug that is used to treat the patient. The susceptible bacteria are eradicated, leaving those drug-resistant bacteria now unopposed. And so those are able to grow, proliferate, and take over. And some of those bacteria that are drug-resistant can easily pass their resistance onto other bacteria, which can propagate the spread of the bacterial resistance. And unfortunately, this resistance can develop extremely quickly. As Jim alluded to in the introduction, some of the drugs for which our organisms have quickly developed resistance include penicillin via penicillin-resistant Staph aureus, methicillin with MRSA. Some of our uh, gram-negative organisms have also developed resistance, which is one of our biggest public health threats. And these include resistance to extended-spectrum cephalosporins, or our ESBL-producing E. coli. And I'll just draw your attention to the years that each of these drugs were released to the market, and then the year that those resistance uh, were identified or recognized in um, pathogens in human patients. And you can see that some of those occurred the same year that the drug was released. And so quite frighteningly, these organisms are quick, they are smart, and um, they're beating us uh, in our race against antimicrobial resistance. And as I mentioned earlier, this is truly a huge public health threat in the United States. Again, estimating over 2.8 million infections each year with uh, drug-resistant bacteria and fungi. And then 35,000 plus of these patients, unfortunately, succumb to their multidrug-resistant organism infections, um, which is just incredibly tragic. And hopefully many of these can be averted in the future. The CDC's threat report that I've alluded to a few times now um, estimates that there are 18 
threats or organisms that they've identified as really high priority for us to pay attention to. And I'm going to talk about some of these in the upcoming slides. If you have some time, I'd really encourage you to delve into this uh, threat report. I'm not sure when the next iteration of it will be uh, released, but the 2019 threat report is publicly available on the web and is a great resource for um, AMR estimating the burden as well as how we can help approach it. The first organism I'll highlight today is drug-resistant Neisseria gonorrhea. It's estimated that 550,000 drug-resistant infections with uh, Neisseria gonorrhea occur in the U.S. every year. Um, and it spreads really easily. And often, this is because patients are asymptomatic, so there's infections go unrecognized for a period of time. Unfortunately, when that occurs, these patients can be infectious and spread it to others and result in life-threatening um, complications such as ectopic pregnancy and infertility and can also increase patients' risk of getting and giving HIV. Timely diagnosis and routine screening for Neisseria gonorrhea in susceptible populations is therefore critical. And when it is identified, we should administer effective treatment as soon as possible. Unfortunately, over time, due, due to the development of resistance to some of the uh, antibiotics that we've used to treat gonorrhea, we have lost these agents. So you can see in the right-hand uh, bottom side of the screen, um, back in the 1980s, penicillins and tetracycline were recommended, and in 2000, we stopped recommending those um, organisms or those uh, agents due to the development of resistance and how this was increasing with time. In 2007, the CDC recommended that Cipro no longer be used to treat gonorrhea. And again, this was due to the increasing prevalence of resistance uh, with this pathogen. And then finally, in 2012, Cifixime um, became a not preferred agent, leaving ceftriaxone as our last reliable agent in the fight against gonorrhea infections. I'd refer you to the CDC's STI uh, treatment guidelines as an excellent resource for further information about how to identify and manage these patients. Next, we'll talk about ESBL, or extended-spectrum beta-lactamase-producing Enterobacteriaceae. I will point out uh, Enterobacteriaceae have been renamed as Enterobacteralis more recently, um, but in the 2019 report, um, the term Enterobacteriaceae was still used. Um, regardless, these um, organisms generally are gut flora, and when causing true infection, um, we might see them pop up in things like urinary tract infections, intra-abdominal infections, pneumonia, and bacteremia. It was estimated in 2019 there were about 197,000 infections in um, hospitalized patients with ESBL enterobacteralis. And although that is the estimate for hospitalized patients, you can see in the bottom right-hand side of your screen that many patients who develop infections with ESBL enterobacteralis organisms are acquired in the community setting. So 47% of these patients acquire this in the community, um, many of which, or all of those, actually don't even necessarily have healthcare exposure. So this really is prevalent in the community as well as the healthcare setting. And ESBLs are scary because they hydrolyze penicillins and cephalosporins, leaving only IV carbapenem therapy for many patients, which is intravenous and would be uh, often patients would have to be hospitalized in order to receive that care. 
Sometimes when ESBLs are identified in the urine, other oral options may be available, such as fluoroquinolones, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, or nitrofurantoin in the right patient, um, but our treatment options are limited. Another pathogen worth mentioning that was highlighted in the introduction is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, or MRSA. It was estimated that 323,000 cases occurred in hospitalized patients in 2017, and over 10,000 of them um, succumbed to their infections. MRSA is um, acquired both in the community and the hospital. And fortunately, with time, we have seen with stewardship efforts some reduction in the prevalence of MRSA. But unfortunately, re these reductions have stalled out in recent years, and so it does remain a very prevalent um, organism in the community as well as in the hospital setting. And there is some link, likely, between community MRSA infections and the opioid crisis. As patients who are people who inject drugs, we do see a fair number of MRSA infections, um, bloodstream, endocarditis, and others um, in these patients. And MRSA is unfortunately now resistant to many of the commonly used uh, drugs, including clindamycin, which um, for many, resistance may be upwards of 50%. Moving on to drug-resistant strep pneumo. Um, this is a very common organism we encounter in community-acquired pneumonia, as well as meningitis. And in kiddos, uh, more so the ear infections, and maybe even um, in all populations, some sinusitis infections. It's estimated there were 900,000 infections with drug-resistant strep pneumo in the U.S. in 2014, and um, we really have uh, seen a significant amount of resistance with strep pneumo develop over time. Fortunately, there are vaccines available to help prevent infection with strep pneumo. And as you can see in the bottom right-hand graph, um, that when those vaccines were introduced um, and made available to the public, we did see some reductions in the incidence of these infections, which is quite promising. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, we have lost penicillin in many communities uh, for the treatment of strep pneumo, as well as tetracycline and erythromycin. So we often reach for third-generation cephalosporins, such as uh, ceftriaxone in the hospital setting, or perhaps ceftonir in the community. Um, but our drug uh, resistance has increased, and therefore our drug treatment options have re been reduced. Next, moving to erythromycin-resistant group A strep. It's estimated there were about 5,000 infections with erythromycin-resistant group, group A strep in the U.S. in 2017. This is an organism that causes sometimes mild infections, such as uh, sore throats, so a strep throat, or impetigo, a skin soft tissue infection, but also can cause really severe infections due to its uh, ability to produce toxins. And it can uh, progress from a simple cellulitis to necrotizing fasciitis, uh, referred to as the flesh-eating infection there on the screen, um, pneumonias, as well as sepsis. And um, we have fortunately not seen resistance to penicillin which, or amoxicillin, which remains the treatment of choice for group A strep. Um, but resistance has increased to erythromycin and clindamycin, as seen in the right-hand graph. Um, so for patients who report penicillin or amoxicillin allergies, our treatment options are more limited. And it's really critical that providers get an accurate allergy history from patients to make sure that if um, they report a penicillin allergy that they truly can't get a beta-lactam therapy. 
And then finally, we'll finish out with clindamycin-resistant group B strep. It was estimated in 2016 there were 13,000 uh, clindamycin-resistant group B strep infections in the United States. This is a bacteria that can cause severe illness, including bloodstream infection, pneumonia, meningitis, and skin infections, and can occur in patients of any age. We do see um, this happen as it's passed from mother to infant um, if the mother is not prophylaxed with therapy during labor, and it can threaten the newborn with sepsis. Clindamycin resistance has limited prevention and treatment options for adults with severe penicillin allergies. And so again, that accurate uh, penicillin allergy history is critical when a patient reports that. Well, thanks, Erica. You know, in the past, the pharmaceutical industry's answer to antibiotic resistance was just invent new antibiotics. What does the new antibiotic pipeline look like in the near future? We do have some agents in the pipeline at this time, um, not as many as we would like to see. And certainly um, we've seen the government infuse some money into the antibacterial pipeline. Um, we're hopeful that more drugs will emerge and we'll just be able to use the ones we have more responsibly as well. In my pulmonary practice, I've treated an awful lot of patients with tuberculosis over the years. And the drugs we use are largely the same ones we've used for decades. Are we seeing drug-resistant TB? Drug-resistant TB does uh, exist, and it certainly is a public health threat. We need to identify when it's resistant and use the correct drugs um, when it does occur. Fortunately, cases of drug-resistant TB have plateaued in recent years, so it doesn't appear to be increasing, uh, but we do need to keep an eye on it. Well, thanks, Erica. For the second part of today's webcast, we're going to take a look at the fundamentals of antimicrobial stewardship. Sydney? Thanks, Jim. So we're talking about antibiotics um, in the outpatient setting, and our objectives are to examine the core elements of outpatient antimicrobial stewardship, discover some of the resources available, keep an eye out for the QR codes on the screen, and discern how to best implement them in your clinical setting. Uh, and most importantly, to become more antibiotic aware, um, aware. So briefly about inpatient antimicrobial stewardship, this is required at all hospitals by the Joint Commission, um, and you're likely encountering these efforts daily while you're rounding. This includes things like restricted antimicrobials, prospective audits with intervention and feedback, IV to oral conversion of antimicrobials, which you may not even um, realize is occurring, as well as education, guidelines, and clinical pathways at your institution. But um, this talk is really gonna focus on the outpatient setting. And why are we talking about outpatient antimicrobial stewardship? Well, we know that that's where a majority of antimicrobials are used. And in 2021, we saw over 210 million antibiotic prescriptions occurring in the United States in the outpatient setting. And that number is quite staggering, but a substantial improvement from the 2014 number that was over 260 million. Um, and when we think about improving antibiotic in the outpatient use, what does that mean? Obviously, patients have infections and, and they will need treatment with antibiotics sometimes. So looking at how often are these prescriptions appropriate? Um, and we know that about 72% of prescriptions are appropriate. They're for things like pneumonia that clearly need antibiotics and, and UTIs. Um, but we also know that almost 30% of prescriptions are for unnecessary um, things such as uh, such as viral infections. And then when we look a little further, we find out that almost 50% of all of those prescriptions, um, uh, you know, a portion of which are unnecessary, are also inappropriate in other ways. So either inappropriate dosing or inappropriate antibiotic selection 
um, or even duration. So that's something to keep in mind that even those infections that are truly bacterial and require antimicrobials, um, that we need to be judicious in our use. Reasons behind inappropriate antibiotic prescribing. Uh, overall, the more research that we've had over the past decade has really made it very clear that this is primar primarily a psychologic and socially rooted behavior, and it's not a scientific decision. Um, there's a little bit of lack of awareness where clinicians don't perceive that they're prescribing inappropriately, um, and certainly misaligned incentives, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but rarely is it from inadequate knowledge about guidelines um, as well as occasional fear from complications of infections if they don't give an antibiotic. Um, but this all is compounded and complicated by a, a feedback loop. And what do I mean by feedback loop? Well, there was a nice study um, done and it showed that um, very clearly and not surprisingly that when a patient comes to a um, physician or a provider looking for an antibiotic for, let's say an infection, and uh, whether or not they need it or not, they're given an antibiotic prescription. And let's say they have a viral upper respiratory tract infection and they're given an antibiotic inappropriately. Regardless of whether that antibiotic actually had any effect at all, the patient's clearly going to have resolution of their viral symptoms and they're going to believe that that antibiotic was the reason they got better. And that actually is compounding because it leads them to believe in the future that they need an antibiotic to get better. It worked for me in the past, I know this is what I need. And so then they seek a future antibiotic prescription in the future um, when they're ill, and they seek care from you again. And then you as a clinician are back to ground zero having to make the decision again, should I give this patient an antibiotic? And now they're pleading with me. Um, and and from, the, from the clinician standpoint, you know, when we decide to do the right thing and not give the antibiotic when we know it's not indicated, all we have for positive reinforcement is the internal reward of I did the right thing and, and this is good. I've been a good steward of antibiotics. Um, it's, it's much easier to prescribe the antibiotic. You have a shorter visit. You don't have to spend time explaining to your patient that they have a viral infection and they don't need antibiotic. You actually are incentivized to bill higher and get higher RVUs because now you've provided a prescription um, and then can increase your billing level. However, this is a little bit mitigated in the outpatient setting now with the advent um, and of the time-based billing is a little bit more lenient now, so hopefully that has mitigated that. So now you have some incentive to spend time with your patient explaining to them that they don't need the antibiotic. But you also feel like your patient's happy and you have less conflict, you have less messages later saying, doc, I need that antibiotic, and you have less anxiety. So it, it's really hard as a clinician to have all of these incentives to prescribe an antibiotic and, and really do the right thing. But we have to recognize and take responsibility that as clinicians, we are part of this cycle. And more importantly, that we can change. And by breaking this cycle, our, our patient's behavior will change. And in the study I mentioned earlier, not only did this affect our patient directly, but it also changes the behavior of patients in that household. Because we know that they're three times more likely to also uh, approach a doctor for prescriptions in the future. And, and so we have to start with us and we can change our behavior. Um, so how do we do that? The CDC has spent a lot of uh, time and effort over the past decade trying to target this since, since we know that almost 70 million prescriptions last, um, in 2021 were inappropriate. So they developed the core elements of outpatient antimicrobial stewardship, which we'll go over today and talk about how you can implement this in your own practice. So what are the CDC core elements of outpatient ASP? The first step is commitment. 
And this is really dedicating um, yourself and your practice to appropriate antibiotic prescription and patient safety. And this is pretty easy for patients, for physicians to do. They, they want to do the right thing for their patients. But what does that look like in clinical practice? Well, it includes displaying public commitments in support of antimicrobial stewardship. It includes identifying a leader to direct the activities in your facility, so picking somebody to help with this. Um, it also includes communicating with all of your staff um, members to set the patient expectations. This includes the front desk from the minute of, or the person on the phone, the minute the patient has contact with the medical system, there has to be a united front that we're not just going to give you antibiotics to make you feel better, we're going to make sure you feel better by doing the right thing. Um, and so making sure medical assistants, nurses, administrative staff, everybody is on the same page regarding our commitment to um, appropriate antibiotic utilization. One easy thing that you can incorporate in your practice is called a commitment poster. And there's a, this is evidence-based medicine. In 2014, there was a study by Mikra et al. And they evaluated the use of a poster with a, um, the provider's picture, as well as signature and a statement of responsible antimicrobial prescribing in the patient exam rooms. And they looked at the effect on antibiotic prescribing in acute upper respiratory tract infections. And what they found was a nearly 20% absolute reduction in the number of inappropriate antibiotic prescribing rates relative to the control. And this was due to um, really the provider and physician you know, having a reminder to themselves to do the right thing. Um, and and this, these results, they didn't diminish over time, which is really impressive. So how can you get your own commitment poster? The CDC has a commitment poster on their website, and you can look at that QR code there to, uh, to grab that one. And um, this poster has a lot of words on it, so I am not a huge fan, and it also doesn't have your picture or your name, but it is easy for you to access. At Ohio State, we have developed our own commitment poster um, for our primary care doctors and other um, providers in their institution to sign. But it took a lot of work and a lot of effort to come up with this um, poster. So my recommendation is to go to the Department of um, Health in Minnesota, and they have a template where you can create a easy poster to provide in your practice um, to have commitment. And you can uh, go to this website. You can it opens up into a PowerPoint. You can add your picture and your signature and your title, um, and and display that. And it, it's really easy thing to do, especially if you're not in an institution that makes you utilize their um, logos. Um, the second core element of outpatient ASP is action for policy and practice. And so this really encourages you to implement at least one policy or practice to improve and assess if it works and modify it as needed. And so these are things that you're probably already incorporating into your practice. Things like using evidence-based diagnostic criteria and treatment recommendations. Diagnostic stewardship is a huge um, you know, segue into antimicrobial stewardship. So not ordering tests when they're not needed, um, and as well as uh, use, utilizing evidence-based recommendations for treatments, as we mentioned in duration selection um, of your antimicrobials. And then uh, another thing commonly practiced, especially in the pediatric uh, setting, is using delayed prescribing practices or watchful waiting, and then utilizing the antibiotic when, you're, when it's appropriate. So thinking about things like acute otitis media in children, or even your sinusitis patient that you know is maybe on day seven of their illness but not feeling quite better yet, um, giving them an opportunity to seek a prescription in the future if their if their fevers and symptoms are continuing. This also includes support for clinical decision, um, and so creating protocols in your office 
uh, as well as utilizing call centers or RN hotlines to triage patients to prevent unnecessary visits if you don't think that an anti antibiotic is indicated. This is something you're probably already implementing in your practice. So things like maybe your MA already um, does your group A strep swab before you get into the room. Well, maybe just adjusting that practice to meet, um, meet evidence-based guidelines and doing a quick adjustment to align yourself with antimicrobial stewardship. One thing that we have implemented at Ohio State and found to be very effective and um, and makes clinicians happy as well as patients is uh, an over-the-counter prescription pad. And so when we see these upper respiratory tract patients, we know that they're feeling awful and they just wanna feel better. And so instead of prescribing them a prescription, which is the easy way to feel like you made a transactional, um, a transaction occur during your visit with them because they came to you seeking help, um, is educating them on how to manage their symptoms when they have acute respiratory illnesses. And, and this also improves your efficiency as a clinician and it decreases errors when you're telling them what drugs to seek out at the pharmacy. Um, and again, allows for that transaction to occur. And, and all of these things are gonna improve your patient satisfaction. So what does this look like? Um, at all, uh, the CDC, again, has a prefab document that, has, um, that you can access from their website that is a prescription pad you can print um, and give to your patients. Uh, at Ohio State, we created our own as well. Um, just, you know, if, if somebody has a sore throat, just quickly scratch off, you know, what you want that, that you want them to utilize warm honey or what medication you would like them to take for a cough to help mitigate their symptoms or taking some Tylenol for body aches. And you just easily check it off and then they can go to their pharmacy um, and make sure that they're getting the correct um, supportive medication. So there's less likelihood of drug interactions, etc. You can also turn this into a dot phrase um, in your electronic medical records and incorporate that into your um, instructions. But, but it's really important to make sure that, you know, we are making this uh, efficient, um, efficient method for you to give patients supportive care. And then looking at tracking and reporting is, is there uh, the third element um, for the core elements, and that looks at monitoring antibiotic prescribing practices and offering regular feedback um, to clinicians or them monitoring themselves. So this is, um, can be done in multiple ways. This is self-evaluation of antibiotic prescribing practices. You can even get um, CME and QI activities um, by, by performing these. And really just, they, they've recommended implementing at least one antibiotic prescribing tracking and reporting system and assessing and sharing performance on quality measures and establish reduction goals. There's some hiatus measures that can be involved in this. Um, the CDC has uh, a tool to help rec make recommendations on how you can incorporate um, tracking and reporting into your practice. One thing that I really um, think is quite amazing is at Denver Health, they've created this OASIS Stewardship Simplified Program. And this will, it can actually, you can sign up for free at their website. And um, if you have uh, EPIC, this in can integrate directly in um, with some of the statistical software. And so with a little bit of, um, with a little bit of work, you can actually use their prior code to get a tracking system. Um, and so you can monitor uh, your antibiotic use outpatient in a variety of topics. So uh, as of right now, they have, um, several things including uh, otitis media and acute respiratory tract infections. And it, it's really a huge project that we're hoping um, continues to grow over the coming years, but really saves a lot of time not having to spend all that time figuring out the code and the graphics and you just can link it up and get some 
um, quick data on your use that uh, continues to grow over time. And then the fourth um, topic is education and expertise. And this provides educational resources both to clinicians and patients on antibiotic prescribing, as well as ensuring, ensuring access to needed expertise on optimizing antibiotic prescribing. Um, and so what does this look like? You know, I think of this a lot as educating patients. So making sure we spend the time to educate patients on when antibiotics are needed and when they're not needed. Making sure they know the potential harms of antibiotics and the risk of antimicrobial resistance. Uh, and another thing that we see a lot, as Erica has mentioned already in our discussion, is discussing those antibiotic allergies versus intolerance. Um, and, and this comes in huge with penicillin allergies because it really does change, um, change the way our treatment is, is set up. One way you can educate patients easily is including some CDC infographics either on your website um, for your practice or just even in the waiting rooms um, and talking about things like common colds and flus and COVID and, and knowing that antibiotics don't work. And these are things you can access from the CDC website for free. Um, they're in a printable poster format already, making it really easy and just spending some time making sure that, that your patients know um, these facts. Um, one of the biggest areas that physicians and providers can grow though is communication skills training. And as we know um, from studies that providers actually really poorly predict when patients want antibiotics. So when a patient starts talking to us about their uh, upper respiratory tract symptoms, it's, it's really our first instinct to think, oh, they want antibiotics for me. And that's actually not often the case. Um, so, so making sure that we're using good communication, um, and then when we do get a little pushback that they want antibiotics, uh, finding the right words and um, to convey uh, our goals with them and what they should do uh, is really important. There's a dialogue around respiratory illness treatment module that's free online. It's actually directed towards patients or to talking to parents. Um, clinicians talking to parents of children, but it really applies for, um, for adults as well. You just have to change the dialogue a little bit and to give you some practice on having that confrontational approach um, because nobody wants to, to have an angry patient when they leave their office. So trying to find some words to really um, make sure we have good communication. So let's look at ASP in practice. What, the, what would this look like for you? So let's say you have a patient with pharyngitis and the first thing they do is obviously they call your office. So they call either you have a triage line or just your front desk person answers the phone and they're complaining that the patient says, I've got a sore throat, I need antibiotics. Um, this ASP really starts at that first triage line. So whoever answers the phone recommends, you know, we, you may not need antibiotics for a sore throat and we really wouldn't know unless we have a chance to evaluate you in clinic um, to really assess your symptoms to see if, you if, if, if an antibiotic would help you or not. So instead of just automatically giving an antibiotic, the commitment um, and policy is shown here um, by having a plan starting from answering the phone from the patient. And then your patient gets seated in your exam room and they look upon the wall and they see the beautiful poster and your commitment to antibiotics and they think, wow, this, this provider really wants to keep me safe and I can trust them knowing that they're only gonna give me antibiotics if they're indicated. And then again, your MA comes in, some takes some vitals, and, and they set the expectations. They don't promise antibiotics. Um, they reassure the patient they're going to get great care. And uh, really making sure that the patient feels like th I'm safe and I'm in a good place, um, but also that it might not include antibiotics. So again, displaying commitment and policy. 
And then we look at policy and practice with this pharyngitis patient. We use evidence-based diagnostic criteria. So in pharyngitis, that looks like looking at the Setner criteria. Do they meet greater than two of the following? Fever, tonsillar exudates, tender cervical lymphadenopathy, and absence of cough. And if they do qualify based on that, go ahead and performing the rapid antigen um, detection test. But again, making sure we use those Setner criteria and not just having patients swabbed when they don't need to be swabbed because we know group A strep uh, colonizes a large majority of the population in our, in our community. So utilizing that test judiciously is part of antimicrobial stewardship. So we know if the test is negative that no antibiotics are indicated and sending a throat swab culture isn't indicated even if there's tonsillar exudates there. Um, and then certainly if it's positive that antibiotics would be recommended. And so this is using diag evidence-based diagnosis. And then moving on then to using evidence-based treatment, looking at your policy and practice. So again, as we talked about, it's really easy when you have a positive Setner criteria with a positive rapid strep test, and then you know you're gonna have to give them antibiotics for group A strep. So again, making sure you're picking the correct antibiotic for the correct duration and the correct dose. And so you appropriately select amoxicillin for 10 days and then the patient declares, oh, but I have this penicillin allergy. So really taking a step back, educating the patient, talking to the patient, discuss that allergy further. Tell me about your allergy. How old were you? Do you remember it? Oh, you had anaphylaxis. Did you get an EpiPen? Oh, you didn't. You just, you know, got it some Benadryl and really Digging deeper, because we know that 10% of the patient or 10% of the population in the United States reports a penicillin allergy, but we also know that less than 1% of the whole population is actually allergic um, to penicillin. And then you also recall, you know what, group A strep antibiotic resistance um, to azithromycin and, cl and clindamycin is increasingly common, so I really need to make sure I clarify this before I make um, my antibiotic selection. So after discussing further, you decide the amoxicillin is safe to use, you found out she's used it in the past and been okay, and you educate the patient and you adjust the flag in the chart in EMR. And I cannot um, overstate this enough that adjusting the flag, even if you leave the penicillin allergy there, but make a note that the patient tolerates amoxicillin is really um, invaluable so that other uh, providers in the future don't make the same mistake. So, we know then, we talked about what to do then if your patient has a positive Setner criteria but the negative uh, strep test is, is negative, then you don't go forward with antibiotics. And again, you're utilizing evidence-based diagnostic criteria. And you can even take it a step further because as a astute clinician, you suspect it's viral. So you educate the patient, um, you talk about how this is likely viral and I'm sorry you feel this way and that you are not feeling good right now, but I have some supportive care recommendations that are gonna help you feel a little bit better and that you will get better in the future and giving them a contingency plan if they don't feel better what to do. And then um, tracking pharyngitis, and, and this can be hard, and, I, and depending on the size of practice, uh, it can be more challenging. And so um, an example you can use for pharyngitis is reviewing rapid um, test results, and then if patients were given antimicrobial use or not. And even looking at a small chart review can be beneficial in a practice to find out where you have um, options to improve your practice use. And then HIDAS measures for pharyngitis, as well as um, the OASIS project um, has options for tracking. So just a reminder, all healthcare professionals can be antibiotics aware um, and, and participate in this practice leading from the person that answers the phone to your MA rooming the patient um, and, and to the clinician making the decision in the room. So thank you very much. Well, thanks, Sydney. You know, you know, one of the most common infections in both inpatient and outpatient medicine is the urinary tract infection. How can we apply the principles of antibiotic stewardship to UTIs? Yeah, that's a great question and it comes up uh, 
very frequently. So in our, our patient that is uh, not having recurrent UTIs, it's fairly straightforward. Um, again, using diagnostic um, guidelines and evidence-based guidelines for your treatment decisions, talking with your patients, finding out if their symptoms are consistent. The IDSA is supposed to be releasing new UTI guidelines um, this fall, and that actually may include uh, first-line use of NSAIDs for your patient symptomatic management in the right uh, patient population. And then in the patients that have recurrent symptoms, really spending a lot of time digging and finding out, do they actually have UTI or do they have another problem like vaginal atrophy or something else going on that is um, leading to their symptoms and finding out how to really tackle the actual problem. Um, and if they ever, if they don't improve on antibiotics after multiple times, that's, that's probably not their problem. As a pulmonologist, it seems like nearly every night that I was on call, a patient with COPD would call in with symptoms of a COPD exacerbation of chronic bronchitis. How do you recommend we approach outpatients with bronchitis? Yeah, so for acute bronchitis, um, we know that it's almost always viral, and so we don't recommend antibiotic use for patients with acute exacerbation of COPD. Um, there are some, uh, the gold criteria discuss times where antibiotics may be appropriate, and certainly in patients that are hospitalized, um, knowing that the azithromycin may have an anti-inflammatory effect more than anything um, is really when we utilize that, but being judicious about when, we, when we're actually selecting to, to use the antimicrobials is important. Well, Erica, most of our discussion today has been on antibacterials. What about antivirals? Are you seeing resistance against these drugs as well? Fortunately, we haven't seen as much issue with the development of resistance to our antiviral agents. Um, we do see some of it, such as CMV. Um, we might have resistance to gancyclovir or valgancyclovir, but the, the nature of how this is increasing in prevalence is not as concerning as it is with our antibacterials. Well, a third major class of antimicrobials are the antifungals. Are fungi also developing resistance to commonly used antifungal drugs? There are some fungi that we uh, see clinically that have resistance to some of the agents that we use, and that could be intrinsic resistance or development of resistance um, with treatment. But similar to our antivirals, fortunately, we're not seeing as much increase in antiviral or antifungal resistance as we are with the antibacterials. Cindy, so, we can do a rapid strep screen in uh, the office for pharyngitis. We can do a urine culture to confirm the presence of UTI. But what about cellulitis? It's a little bit more tricky. Skin infections are very common in primary care practices. How can we apply antimicrobial stewardship to outpatient cellulitis? Yeah, I think, um, first, if I haven't mentioned it again, like clinical uh, diagnosis is really important. So making sure you're seeing these patients in their office, if they have you know, bilateral cellulitis, is it really venous stasis, really assessing that. Um, but it, you know, once you diagnose the cellulitis and you feel that it is truly cellulitis, uh, then making sure that we're selecting the right duration is really important. Um, and we've noted over time that our duration has really gone down for a lot of infections. So what we used to be 10 to 14 days is now maybe five to seven. And talking to your patients, um, making sure that they know that, hey, if everything's cleared up after five days of antibiotics, you can, you don't have to take the rest of the, um, the sample, which is different from our prior use of saying, hey, make sure you finish your antibiotics or, or the infection's gonna come back. So knowing which infections we can decrease the duration on is really important. Um, and then having, again, a contingency plan. Like if you're not better at the end of five, seven days, what to do? Well, many of our viewers are family practice providers or pediatricians. Has antimicrobial stewardship changed the way that we manage ear infections, particularly in children? 
Yeah, absolutely. And most of the pediatricians will know there's been a huge effort to decrease the amount of antibiotics used in um, pediatric acute otitis media. And this really started in Europe. And, and we know patients can do just as well with getting um, symptom relief. And, and this is kind of flowing into the adult space as well, knowing that acute diverticulitis can often be managed with symptom management with you know potentially NSAIDs. And as I mentioned before, UTIs this fall, maybe in the IDSA guidelines as well, is really focusing on symptom relief, knowing that our bodies have an innate ability to heal. Erica, a lot of pharmacists are also watching today's webcast. What's the role of the outpatient pharmacist in antibiotic stewardship? These individuals are really critical in fighting against the AMR um, pandemic, if you will. Uh, these uh, professionals can help the providers to select the appropriate antibiotic, as well as the appropriate dose and duration of therapy for patients in the community. You know, many of our viewers are at hospitals that don't have an infectious disease doctor. What's the role of the inpatient pharmacist in antibiotic stewardship? Inpatient pharmacists are usually the individuals doing a lot of the day-to-day -day work with antimicrobial stewardship efforts. Um, we help write guidelines and policies, make formulary decisions around which antimicrobials we will offer in our hospital, and make patient interventions as well by reviewing patient lists. So these individuals are extremely crucial. Well, Sydney, the best way to reduce antibiotic use is to reduce infections. Where are we with some new vaccines? Yeah, it's been great seeing a lot of new vaccines coming over the past few years. This past year, we've seen um, the implementation of a new pneumococcal vaccine with more strains, so hopefully less strep pneumo in the community, as well as most recently the RSV vaccine for our older individuals, as well as um, pregnant women to prevent infections in 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 babies and, and hopefully with less viral um, illnesses in the community, we'll see less upper respiratory tract infections and less antibiotic prescriptions as a result. You know, dental prescriptions account for about 10% of all outpatient antibiotic prescriptions. What advice do you have for our dentistry colleagues? Yeah, really to stay up to date on the guidelines. It's really hard to, um, to make sure that we're using the antibiotics in appropriate um, ways. So we know that, for instance, if you've had a history of endocarditis, that antibiotic prophylaxis is indicated. Um, and for years, uh, patients were given antibiotic prophylaxis before common dental cleanings for if they've had a joint replaced. Well, we know after um, a lot of evidence and a lot of studies that that's not beneficial and doesn't doesn't help the patients. So making sure that, you know, if somebody's had a joint replacement, not giving them antibiotics and, and being very judicious and staying up with the guidelines. Well, thanks, Sydney. We're going to finish up with a couple of final key points about antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic stewardship. Erica? Antimicrobial resistance is a growing global public health threat. And Sydney? We are all responsible for antibiotic stewardship. Well, Erica and Sydney, thanks again for joining us today. For all of you viewing, uh, you can get American Board of Internal Medicine maintenance and certification points for viewing MedNet and then answering the post-test questions following the webcast. Next week, Dr. Jing Jing Mao will be back as moderator, and joining her will be orthopedic surgeon Dr. Ryan Rauch to discuss shoulder instability, rotator cuff tears, and shoulder arthritis. We'll see you then.